Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, the thesaurus, that has become like a Bible to me. Creative visualization that really set me free. I love actioning. Very specific action verb. Understanding their backstory is vital in order to be able to This create. is the actor's mind. What are we called? Welcome to we, actor's, actor's mind. Well, I like that. Do you want to say it this time? Yeah, Okay, I do. do it, do I it, do it. I didn't realize I did until you asked. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the uh, Maiden Voyage, the launching episode number one of The Actor's Mind. My name is Anne. My name is Katiri. And we're recording in my office on the campus, on the University of Denver campus in Denver, Colorado. Um, we This is a podcast that defines, describes, explores various acting tools, both from the practice based perspective and the psychological science side of things. Um, should we introduce ourselves? Let's do it. All right. You want to go first? You go first. Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, so my name is Katiri McRae. Uh, you can also call me Professor McRae. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Psychology here at the University of Denver. I actually have an undergraduate degree in both drama and human biology. And a lot of times people ask me, what is the intersection of drama and human biology? And I answer very smartly, psychology is the answer. So uh, I am an affective neuroscientist in terms of the research I do and the teaching that I do. And I study a number of different emotion cognition interactions, um, most commonly emotion regulation, how we control, how we don't control what we feel. And I look at that by uh, measuring what's going on in people's um, bodies and their brains. So that's, that's what I'm here to offer. Awesome. I just learned a few new things about you. Uh, my name is Ann Penner, uh, and I teach. I'm an associate professor in the University of Denver's theater department. I teach a bunch of acting uh, courses, directing, actor movement courses, and I'm also a professional stage actor, producer, and director. My work focuses on contemporary acting technique and on various actor movement trainings. And since teaching acting to undergraduate students is one of my main responsibilities, I'm a bit obsessed with all the different ways a student or a professional actor can be successful. So we want to tell you why we're doing this podcast. So for anyone who knows even a little bit about acting, you know it's tied to psychology in some way. If part of an actor's job is recreating human behavior on stage, then this must include a basic understanding of how our minds work. I gave a lecture a year ago, which Kateri attended uh, because of her background as an actor. And during the lecture, I, I walked the audience through the most basic but important acting tools. So while I talked about these like objective substitution, et cetera, I think Kateri's brain was exploding yeah. and she can maybe talk about that. I was, I was, I was like, it was one of those moments where I could not take notes fast enough. Like I was clacking away on my laptop and I still was not able to keep up with like the speed of the thoughts that I was having. And very little of what you were saying was entirely brand new to me. You know, I've read some of the sort of traditional texts from my, from my undergraduate background and, and also just out of interest. Um, but I just, for one of the first times was having this incredible alignment of like you were using terminology and I was like, Oh, psychologists call this that, right? Like you talk about yeah. objectives. I talk about goals and appraisals and emotions and, you know, you talk about substitution and I think about episodic memory and like, what are the qualities of things that you can swap out for one another. So 
I was, uh, I also had to leave early. I remember I had to like run out before the very end. And so, um, I think even while I was sitting there, I sent you an email <laughs> to yeah, say, yeah, yeah, let's, um, let's go out for coffee. So we started meeting up for coffee and we didn't have a goal at first. We just, um, we're chatting about mutual interests and we, I think we both found that we like never had long enough, no matter agree, how yeah. much time we scheduled, we never had long enough because we still had more to talk about and we would go off on tangents that were really interesting to the other person. And we'd both have to like look at each other and be like, wait, what did you say two minutes ago? Cause I had right. a really interesting right, thought. Right. Our minds were exploding. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to give you the kind of the, so what of this podcast, like why, what's the point, what's the objective which is a nice word because that's actually the topic we're going to cover today. Um, We want to clearly define and describe practical tools an actor uses in rehearsal or performance so anyone can understand them. Um, And we want to back up these ideas with psychological science. So I'm going to learn a lot in terms of what Kateri knows and I don't know yet. Our goal is to help student, amateur, professional actors act well. We also hope to engage anyone curious about acting and Honestly, anyone whose work involves public speaking. Yeah, and then another goal is to sort of talk about emotion and the way that psychologists talk about emotion. So what are the different theories of how emotions work? What are the different uh, components of emotion called? Um, how does the brain handle emotion? How does knowing how the brain handles emotion like help us understand it better? Part of that goal is that uh, people just become more fluent in sort of emotional terms that maybe will help them understand their own emotions, even not on stage, right? So that maybe yes. you might gain a little bit of self-awareness or emotional awareness that you didn't have before. Uh, I'm fascinated as an acting teacher with using emotion as a tool because so much about what I teach is about not having new actors worry about emotion. I think some people think that acting is emoting, acting is just playing emotion. And so what I'm fascinated with is I think there are certain ways to have a relationship to emotion, to be active around it, but I'm not yet convinced that emotion is something you can play. Uh, so during our first season, we're going to focus on a bunch of acting tools, one per episode. And today is... Objective. Or as um, I would say, appraisal. Or appraisal. That's the other side of the coin. So, topic number one, objective. I'm going to define it real fast, and then Kateri's going to talk about it in, in her language. So, an objective is arguably the most important acting tool. Some people will disagree with me there. And I'm happy to have some disagreeers. Uh, it has a lot of different synonyms. It's an intention. It's a motivation. It's a goal. It's a purpose. It's an ambition. It's a desire. It's a pursuit. It's a need. But it means simply what a character wants at any given time during the course of a scene or a story. And there's lots of different ways to phrase this. Really simply, what do I want in character on stage? What does the character want from the other character characters on stage? what a character wants to do to another character on stage to achieve a desired result, and possibly even just an image. So rather than words to describe an objective, it could be a picture, right? I want to make Kateri laugh and cry with joy, right? That's the the objective. Game on. on. So what do I have to do to achieve that objective? Um, There's a bunch of resources we're going to stick on our website, um, but... Some of them that we love is there's an objectives chapter, a chapter called Objectives from a book called A Sense of Direction by William Ball. And 
he gets into, well, I think we'll talk uh, about that chapter in a, a little bit. Uh, but the one thing I want to say right now is the an ideal, super specific way to describe an objective is I want to verb a receiver, a per, another character, or it could be you, to obtain a desired result. Another resource uh, that I find really useful as a teacher is the Practical Handbook for the Actor. And their first chapter, which is called Physical Action, which to me is a synonym for objective, they list nine rules of an objective, which for a lot of my students, especially ones who aren't theater majors, who are maybe engineers or math majors mm -hmm. and like things that are practical and doable, they like having those rules. Um, I think those are the two I want to mention right Definitely. now. And I think from my perspective, again, coming at it, I, uh, you know, I think we'll end up touching on a lot of different topics that aren't necessarily always to do with emotion. But because I am an emotion scientist, when I start hearing about objectives, um, they're so central to the concept of emotion, at least for people like me. And so I am a I was about to say card carrying, but I don't have a card. So I am a, <laughs> I am a, a, a conceptually card carrying appraisal theorist when it comes to emotion and objective is so central to the appraisal theory of emotion that actually you cannot have an emotion if you don't have an objective, if you don't have a goal. So appraisal theory in general is a recognition that there's a relationship between thoughts and emotions. And we can talk a little bit more about what exactly is a thought, but you know, there are, there have been some emotion theorists over time who have thought that emotions are entirely bodily reactions or that emotions are unconscious responses that we have to things that we sort of bump into in the environment. This is sort of the like, um, amoeba, uh, theory of emotions where you're just like wandering around and you bump into things that are good or bad and then you move towards them or away from them. Um, and appraisal theory really says, no, it matters what we make of our situation and it matters uh, the, the thoughts that we have, and those are what determine the emotions that come next. And so one of the central pieces of an appraisal is uh, goal relevance or self-relevance. Some people separate those out into two different uh, dimensions. Some people consider them the same one. But basically, if something isn't uh, if something that happens in the world has no relation at all to a goal that you have, it's really hard to imagine how that causes you to have an emotion, right? So if I called you up on the phone and I said, Anne, guess mm. what? what? They painted the inside of this restaurant near my house blue and it used to be green. Who cares, Kateri? <laughs> Why are you telling me that? That doesn't affect me it emotionally at all. It doesn't affect you at all, right? You've never been to this restaurant. You're not going to come to this restaurant. You don't care whether it's blue or if green. If you invited me, I would. Thanks. Do you want to come out to lunch with me sometime? Sure. <laughs> Maybe to celebrate our uh, maiden voyage. Yeah, let's do it. Um, we'll break a bottle of champagne yes. at the restaurant, and then they'll never let us come back. Mm. So yeah, so so the idea that you need to know what you want in order to have authentic emotions that follow is like very very central to appraisal theory. And then there's all these really delicious other dimensions of appraisal, like urgency and certainty and attribution of causality. So like, are you causing something to be closer to your goal, or is someone else causing something to be closer to your goal. And um, there are lots of other really cool parts of, of appraisal theory, but, but objectives are just like embedded in them. And they're usually called, um, they're usually called goals um, in, in the okay. context of appraisal theory. We've talked a lot over the past year about, you know, is emotion playable? Is it active? And my sort of quick answer is, especially as an acting teacher is no, like, don't worry about playing emotion because I think about you know, you can play action, you can play objective, and I'll, I'll describe the difference 
Can you give an example of like someone trying to play an emotion? Like what, if you had a a first year theater student in. Sure. And I want to give a really, yeah. So, you know, you could throw out, play angry, right? And then, and a student would take that in and uh, what would they do? They'd get loud, Uh right? And they would shout and they would furrow their brow and all of those things. And actually, there's nothing wrong with trying that out in rehearsal or in class if it then leads backwards, forwards, whatever direction, to an active objective. So as a means to getting to something doable, go for it. But as a thing that you're just kind of hanging out and playing inside of, we all know that emotions can hit us unpredictably and that the word anger means... A million different things. So yeah. I can feel anger towards a friend for betraying me, but that anger is maybe different from me feeling angry at a politician for behaving or a certain way, right? So those have a different quality to them. So to just use the word anger, it's really too general. It's too vague. I wanted to ask you about what exactly, like how much do you try to control what your students' like inner monologue is like. In what situations <gasps> do you give a student like a mantra to repeat, or not a student, oh. but a, an actor, yeah. like a mantra to repeat? Like, do you ever tell people like, you know, just think to yourself, like, I need to get out the door. I need like to remind themselves yeah. of the objective. Yeah. Certainly, I think what we're talking about is like you don't very rarely, at least as an actor, you want do you want your inner monologue to be. I need to get angry. Like right. I need to get right. mad. Right. 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 Like that, that is not right. useful. That's what right. you mean when you say that anger isn't playable. Right. You just brought up a bunch of awesome things and my head <laughs> is exploding again. We've talked about the thing you just said, which is a character could use anger, could decide the character could may, maybe doesn't feel angry or sad or joyful, but could decide to outwardly play one of those things to get what they want. Right. So children do this all the time, right? I... I have a six-year-old and a 10-year-old, right? But I'm thinking, okay, well, my six-year-old is in a phase where she pouts a lot. And she's not really a, that's not really characteristically who she is. But she's doing this, it's not fully authentic. She's doing it as a way to get what she wants, right? Right. Whether it's attention or a toy or something. Right. Um, But her, like, her, if she had an inner monologue that you could have access to, it's probably not, I need to pout. It's probably, I need to show mom how sad this yes, is making exactly, me. Exactly. Or maybe even I need to make mom feel guilty so she will right. do this thing. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Which is another, I love, I love when an objective is trying to make the other person feel a certain way right. to get them to do a certain thing. So inner monologue, I tackle this a couple ways. I used to ask students to write out an inner monologue in a scene. And there's some something useful there, which is you're getting the actor thinking about perhaps the inner thing thoughts and desires and wants and objectives of the character. And then I read Uta Hagen and Respect for Acting, and she has a chapter on thinking. I forget the number of this chapter. And her point, which is brilliant, is, and somewhat obvious, is that thinking happens so quickly yeah. that to ask an actor to write down or, th- or to uh, create a kind of static, step-by-step thinking process is not 
real. Right. So there's a couple things I do. What she talks about instead is that you want actors to be thinking about inner objects, inner things or objects of attention, just things, people, ideas that they are focused on to kind of get what they want. Um, The other thing I do sometimes in class, which is super fun, is I will... Do. I learned this from an amazing teacher. I think I learned it from Larry Hecht. I learned it from Larry, who's actually going to be a guest later on the episode. Um, and it's, uh, I call it a cry, or he, I think he called it a cry. You could call it a bunch of things, where you speak text, and then the the thing you want, the desire comes out at the end. Mm. So um, maybe I'm in love with Katiri, right? <laughs> and after every one of my scripted lines, and maybe it's like, do you want some coffee? I simply add, I love you right? Oh, no, no, no. You look great today. You don't look whatever, you know, you look great. You look great. I love you. Right. (laughs) So that there's a way to keep practicing and reiterating, um, yeah, a desire or a want, or even, I guess in a way that's a, what is that? It's a thought, right. And to see how that informs your acting. And it is a thought, but I love you has an inherent objective in it, which is love me back. Right. 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 Like you almost never, when you love someone, it's almost never like, I just need them to know that I love them. Right. It's like, I want them to jump me or I want them to admit that they're in love with me too. Or I want them to admire me or respect me or it's love is such an interesting word because it means different things to different people. Right. Like for me, the pinnacle of love is mutual admiration, right? It's like, I admire this person and so much about them and they admire me and how amazing is that, right? Right, But for some other people, it might be, um, it might be like the the mutual commitment, right? That the pinnacle of love is someone who says, I will do anything for you and you are willing to do anything for them or... um, Security. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, so I feel like the I love you thing, and I remember we did that exercise too when I was an undergrad. And then, am I right that what you then do is you redo the scene without saying it? But then it's just infused throughout the whole line. And it also, what it does is it carries your intention through into the space between before the next person speaks. Yeah, I love that. Because you're still sort of hoping like maybe they'll say it now. Right? Like rather than that like very amateurish thing, which is like, here's my line and now I stand. And now I do nothing until (laughs) you, Um, until it's my turn to speak again. I love what you said about about Uta Hagen saying that um, thinking happens too fast because that's actually one of the critiques of appraisal theory. So on the whole... Dimension of like the different theories people have about emotion. Uh, like I said, um, appraisal theory is all about the relationship between thinking and feeling. And in general, this isn't always true. Thinking tends to have a reputation for being slow, being deliberative, being conscious and language driven and all of these sorts of things. And so a lot of people have said emotions happen way too fast to require thoughts uh, as an antecedent, right? Uh-huh. Like you can't possibly say our thoughts lead to our emotions because thoughts are slow and emotions are fast. And so whether or not appraisal theorists just quickly were like, oh, no, 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 we mean all kinds of things can be thoughts. You know, they, they, they sort of pivoted and were like, oh, we also mean these really rough evaluations. But they also point out that our goals don't always have to be, like sometimes you really are sitting like, in line at the grocery store and you're like, I have to be home in five minutes. I have right. to be home in five minutes. And that's all you're thinking about. And then someone cuts in front of you and you're like, oh, blah, 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 yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and, and you absolutely like let loose on them. But sometimes your it's, your goal isn't at the forefront of your mind, right? Like sometimes you're drifting and thinking about something else, totally. but maybe you just have a really low level 
um, intense sense of like order and fairness in the world and someone cuts in front of you and it reminds you like this isn't fair I was waiting here first fairness is really important you know what I mean like it's it violates that goal you have that's like a low level goal throughout your entire life and more of a a belief and and so let me try yes to that and I'm fascinated by this sort of when the objective is the main thing you are always focusing on affects everything and when maybe some other tools Mm. or some other human behavior ideas uh, can creep in and maybe be just as powerful because my husband's point, who knows a lot about theater and is a playwright and used to be an actor, is people, as you were saying right now, people don't always know what they want, right? But but actors are trained to always know what they want on stage. Um, you know, what, what Uta Hagen would say in respect for acting, and I think it's in the thinking chapter, I'm not sure, is say I'm trying to get out the door right? That's the, that's the objective, is to get out the door to get to work or to get to an appointment and to be there on time, right? right? To impress the person or to show that I'm professional, right? Or to show that I respect them. But in terms of thinking, there's all these other thinking circumstances, given circumstances going on. So maybe you have children, and maybe you need to get them out the door too. And there's, they're very slow. They need to brush their teeth. They need to brush their hair. They need to put their clothes on, et cetera. <laughs> That's my life. Um, maybe <laughs> I have a two and a half year old. I'm with you. Right, I'm with you. Right. Maybe you're putting on your coat. This is one of her examples. And a button falls off or the zipper doesn't mm. work. Right. What's good, to, good about this in terms of acting training is the more you're filling your body, your thinking process with these thoughts that the character might be thinking, you are more fully present on stage, right? You're, you're working through and answering the questions about all the trace elements of this character. Right. I want to talk more about emotion because about you, you've said something great about, okay, if we right now today and maybe down the line we decide emotion is playable, if today we sort of say the truth is it's not playable, it can be experienced, you can live through it, it is a consequence of thinking you're achieving your objective or not achieving your objective. Um, or even making progress. Or right? even making so progress not, not just towards. yes or no, but mm-hmm. yeah, or am I moving towards it or, yeah. or away from it? You talked about, yes, um, how we can have an active relationship to emotion. Does that, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but say a character is, the circumstances of the script dictate that this character is in a happy place or they've achieved their objective, right? Oh, yeah. And this leads to happy, right? Or this, this is what we presume from mm-hmm. the, the clues we have in the text. Or they don't achieve their objective and they feel frightened or mad or angry or sad or something or depressed. You can have a reaction to feeling that emotion, right? Right. Yeah. So there are, um, all the time, our goals and objectives are sort of shifting, right? And as you pointed out with your getting out the door example, we often have sort of multiple ones, right? So your immediate goal is to get out the door, but your a a larger one, I don't know if this is quite large enough to be a super objective, but like another objective might be to be a punctual person or to show respect for the person that you have the appointment with, Um, or even like to just to be um, in general put together, right? Imagine if your objective was to be a put together person and you're running late and then a button flies off your shirt, you're like, two things, two at once, two obstacles. Um, 
But sometimes um, people's goals, if you have a goal to be someone who's in control, right, then there are certain emotional states that are unacceptable to you, oh. right? You, If you're flying out off of off the handle with anger, that's counter to your goal to be a put together and in control person. And so let's say, you know, you're running late out the door and then, you know, the cat runs out the door and you have to chase them across the like lawn. You might be so incredibly angry and then you might realize, oh man, I'm angry. I'm, I'm screaming profanities through my neighbor's lawns to like chase down my cat. That's also inconsistent with the kind of person that I want to be. And then you might feel something like guilt or shame, you know, maybe mm. guilt, um, is tends to be more self-focused. So I'm, I'm behaving in a way that's inconsistent with who I want to be. And shame is a little bit more social. Other people can see that I'm this way. And you and, call and that I don't. like a secondary emotion? Yeah. Some people call that a, a secondary emotion. Yeah. So, um, not everyone uses this terminology, but some people talk about primary emotions and secondary emotions. Um, and secondary emotions as being emotional reactions to the emotions that we have. Um, and so guilt and anger are actually two really good examples of, yeah. of someone, uh, someone who says, oh, I felt really sad about this. And then I felt really angry at myself that I allowed myself to be sad. Right. Or, you know, I was, you know, I, I felt really happy that I got this job, but then I felt guilty because I was happy because not everybody got, was able to get the job. And, and right, you know, right. right. I find this extremely valuable because emotion to me is this amoebic thing that we're not in control of. Can you talk briefly about the um, conflicting theories of what um, what is what makes um, what the parts of emotion are? Totally, yeah. So the emotion theorists, in general, very broad strokes, tend to agree on what the component parts of emotion are. That emotion, emotions involve at some point an appraisal um, that we've been talking about. That they involve um, a physiological reaction throughout our body, so that there are coordinated or semi-coordinated responses. For example, the sympathetic nervous system tends to do things like increase your heart rate. Um, and deliver blood to the periphery, which changes your temperature and and sometimes can increase blood uh, to like to your face if you're blushing, for example. So there are some coordinated bodily responses that happen. Um, that there are expressions of the emotions that we're feeling that are visible to other people. This is really obvious in terms of facial expression of emotion that we configure the muscles of our face to show what we're feeling. There are also vocal expressions of emotion and um, bodily expressions of emotions, a whole scale, you know, leaning forward or leaning back or slumping over or puffing up. Um, and then there are actions, right? So then there's like running away or hitting something or, um, you know, hitting a button that blows up, blows up a bomb or, you know, things, things that, that you're actually doing that impact the outside world. Um, I'm trying to think what are the other, some of the other components. And then there's the feeling state, right? There's like how you would answer the question, I feel this. Mm -hmm. um, and for some people that is really important that that's a linguistically accessible, like labelable feeling. And for other people, it's just, no, you have a subjective feeling, even if you don't know what to call it. What the emotion theorists disagree on and have for a couple hundred years is in what order they happen. Mm. Um, as though there's only ever one order. Right. Um, oh, yeah. You know, so the, the the most famous sort of disagreement about this is whether or not our bodies respond first and then we notice that our bodies are responding and we say, oh, I must be feeling something or whether we feel something and then it causes our body to respond in a certain way. Yeah. Um, you what know, do and you it, think? Oh, that's a good question. <sighs> I mean, again, I tend to be, I tend to be an appraisal theorist. And so I actually tend to think that the uh, the actual order 
might not always matter. There might be some circumstances where the order matters, but our emotions actually cycle so quickly back to the beginning, right? Like as soon as you, as soon as you perform an action, um, you know, like you slap somebody across the face, that creates a whole new situation where you're now you're looking at somebody who you've you've physically injured, right? And that causes a whole other trigger of is this consistent or inconsistent with my goals? And how does that make me feel? And it and it really, you know, all, all sorts of different things happen in your body. And so I I tend to not think about what is the order that objectively like always happens in the same way. I like to think about where are the most flexible access points? Mm. What are the things that we can intervene and change how people are feeling? And what are the things that we can't, right? And one of the reasons I'm obsessed with appraisal is that appraisals are really accessible. You can mm. change how you appraise something. So one of them, the um, are really good examples of a change in an appraisal um, is if you're going into a situation that might be really um, frightening to you, that represents something that you're not sure if you can do, right? So let's say you're auditioning for a part that you don't know if you're right for, you don't know if you have the chops for, if it's a company that's a reach, or maybe yeah. you're auditioning for grad school and you don't know if you're ready. You can appraise that as a threat to you. You can appraise it yeah. as, oh my gosh, this thing is going to, it, this thing is going to be, uh, it's going to reveal me for the fraud that I am. Yeah. And um, it's, I'm going to melt down and it's going to be so horrible. Or you can appraise it as a challenge and yeah. say, okay, this is the next step in my training and this is going to be difficult and it might feel difficult, but it's going to be ultimately good for me in the end. Yeah. And so the difference between a threat and a challenge appraisal actually has consequences for how your body responds and whether, whether your body mobilizes resources to help you meet that goal or whether your body shuts down and says, this isn't yeah. worth it. I've already decided it's over. Let's conserve energy for this the next is, time. This is super awesome <laughs> because uh, part of the, I want to make sure we return to sort of the ba some basic basics of analysis when, when actors are analyzing a script. And one of the many ones is given circumstances. And I keep thinking about the best way to teach given circumstances are all the facts that make up this character's life. And my husband, who has strong sort of feelings about what acting is and can be and should be, is character is an illusion, right? Which is a lot of people think that way. Character is simply... Um, a conglomeration of a lot of different given circumstances. And once you answer the 100, 200, 500 questions about what's going on in this character's life and his or her feelings or reactions to those, relationships to those, then you know what the character is. And so when my students, when I ask them to list given circumstances, we begin with the facts that are already in the script, the who, what, where, when, why. Yeah. An objective is thrown into that. But then what I love, and those are kind of the objective facts, the objective circumstances, right? The things that everyone would agree are true. And then what I love is that they then add in some subjective circumstances, which is really the character's appraisal mm. of those circumstances. Um, and I, I, I had one recently where this isn't so much about objective, but it's about my relationship to circumstances. I, I very much wanted to be cast with this company. And for a while, I was seeing that circumstance as a binary, that if I got cast, it was amazing. It was, um, it was, uh, just fantastic. And then if I didn't, it was horrible. And then I shifted because I didn't have any control. Yeah. 
and I shifted. And I thought, well, no, 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 no. Actually, if I get cast, it's wonderful. And if I don't, it's neutral. It's fine. It's not, there's no fault of mine, no fault of the people not casting. And that kind of, I don't know if that's appraisal, reappraisal. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I would call that a, a reappraisal. Yeah. Yeah. And there, and you had, there's another option too that you could have. Um, it's interesting that that worked for you to appraise it to neutral because yeah. some people would actually say it wouldn't work for them unless they were like, no, if they if they cast me, it's good. And if they don't cast me, it's good, but in a way I don't know yet, right? Oh, like it opens up some other uh-huh. door in my life and frees up some time and maybe I'll buy a Winnebago and like meet, <laughs> you know, my soulmate like across the country. Yeah. Or, yeah, I don't know. Like I sort of had that thought, but I, yeah, I just went to neutral, which is kind of blah, but it was, it was comforting. Yeah. It gave that reappraisal, I guess, emotionally was positive. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about objectives from a sort of analytical dry perspective. Um, not dry, I don't want to say dry. Um, there's just other sort of analysis that I want to throw in there. So I want to talk about a beat, which is a unit okay. of action. So when you're working on a script, there are three concentric circles of objectives. There's what's called the super objective, uh, which is, or what's sometimes called the through action, uh-huh. um, that is really what the character wants over the course of the whole play. And I think that's okay if that's just a noun. So okay. I just played, um, uh, years ago, I played a role, and my wonderful director, Ashley Temple, said she wants adventure. Like, the whole play mm. is about her going out and getting adventure. And because it takes place over the whole play, I think it's okay, I think it's okay that it's not a verb Okay. in that way. Then within each scene is one or more objectives. Now, it probably can't be 15 that's too many. But I think it could shift. It might just be one. I think it could shift to two or possibly three. Some people might disagree. But what's, what's useful to think, what's useful to keep in mind is that you're always assessing and appraising if you are achieving the objective. Right. And one of the rules in Practical Handbook for the Actor is an objective has to have a cap. You have to know if you've achieved it or not. Right. The most traditional way of seeing a of defining a beat or a unit of action is it's really the length, it's the length of an objective, right? So if <laughs> if we have a specific outline and we get to the final topic on our outline, then we've achieved the objective of our first recording, our first <laughs> podcast, right? I don't know if there's an endpoint of our outline, <laughs> but so that's a very clear, right? And then I would move on in my everyday life to a new objective right. because there's no reason to keep pursuing well, that one. And what's interesting about that, and this is kind of what I was trying to ask you about when I asked you about like the internal monologue of your character, is that I feel like some, when you're doing the work of identifying objectives, it's sometimes easy to think that like, okay, what I need to be thinking of as the character is, this is my objective, this is my objective. But that's totally, like in everyday life, we're usually not thinking, I mean, again, there, there are a few cases in which we are, but even when we're like standing in the supermarket saying, I have to be home in five minutes, I have to be home in five minutes, we're usually going, this lady needs to speed up, right? Yeah, like how, yeah. how long is it, you know, what, you going to pay with a check? Like you're focusing on the obstacles and, and, and the progress and how close you are. And what's fascinating is that I think that in everyday life, people don't always make their appraisals Con- like um, conscious people oh, aren't yeah, always consciously identifying totally agree. their appraisals, but yet they still have sort of emotional responses to things. And, um, 
it's interesting because when you ask adults to change their appraisals, like when you ask adults to change from like a challenge to a threat, most adults can change without identifying the initial appraisal, right? Like most adults, you can say, can you, can you think of this job interview as a challenge? And they can do that. I did a study once with kids um, that went as young as eight. um, And then we put them in the scanner to look at what was going on in their brains as young as 10. The kids, we were trying to teach them how to change their appraisal to reappraise. And they found that they needed to state their appraisal first. They needed to like make it clear what their appraisal was before they could then change it, awesome. which I thought was like really fascinating. But like most of uh, adults, it's like behind the scenes. Right, I right, think. right. And I th- so, uh, to tie that sort of back into the acting process, who you are and what you're able to do, um, whether you are in performance or backtrack into rehearsal, or if you're at home doing some analytical work on your script, I think what an, uh, an actor is capable of is different. So, for example, you know, I ask my students, and you know, most actors know how to do all this. You, you analyze your text for objectives, for beats, for obstacles, for given circumstances. Maybe you action your text, um, and maybe you color your text. There's other things you can do too. You can't actually be doing all of that in re- rehearsal, some of it, and clearly in performance when you're negotiating audience and you're negotiating how you're feeling and you're negotiating your scene partner and all those things, which you should be negotiating. So in another episode, what I want to focus on is that idea of how present is all this analysis, yeah. all these tools that we're talking about when you're actually just on stage yeah. in the spontaneous sort of art of it. Love it. Um, just, so wait, you didn't actually talk about actioning. I interrupted oh, you. Oh, I wanted, you were yeah, that's okay. Um, so a lot of actors, so there's these three concentric circles. I talked about super objective of the whole play, the objective, which is roughly the size of a scene. And, um, uh, the third sort of mini version of an objective, it's like a sub objective is this idea of, uh, actions or actioning your text. So some people will call an objective an action, but the reason I don't call it that is an action in the way I see and many people see it is a transitive verb. I'd remind myself what a transitive verb is. It's a <laughs> verb that fits in I blank you. So I attack you. I love you. I seduce you. I tickle you. I hug you. I befuddle you. I confuse you. Uh, so you couldn't say I flirt with you. I explain to you because mm. those have prepositions and so they're not powerful enough. So right. you're finding a super powerful. I educate you. I educate you. <laughs> I glorify you. I Demoralize, demoralize you. Sure. I conquer you. I dazzle you. Right? Am I, I dazzling you. you right now? You are. You are through the microphone. <laughs> behind the microphone. <laughs> and so these are ways some people attribute an action verb to every single line that they speak because every single line is a separate thought. Every mm-hmm. single sentence is a separate thought. And so very, very specific actioners will attribute uh, one of these verbs to each of them. What, How these are useful is you can get, um, is it depository, repository? You can get a kind of collection of these action verbs that you can play, you can vary while you play one objective. So if I have one objective, but I have it for 10 minutes, so if it is to... If I'm Stanley Kowalski in Streetcar Named Desire and I want to demoralize uh, uh, Blanche, right, my sister-in-law, um, because I hate her, because she doesn't, because she makes me feel powerless. Because make, she's been living with me and because for she's like living months. forever, <laughs> and she takes forever in the Take bathroom. A hint, right, lady. I have a verb in my objective, which is I want to demoralize. I want to belittle. Right. I want to 
um, abuse, harass Blanche. But then I add in even more, which are all the different ways that I, I could, could achieve that objective. So is it to confuse? Is it to ignore her? Is it to, um, uh, what, what are some others? I was going to say to create an obstacle, but that's, is it to, to stop her? Is it to arrest her? So there's lots of different verbs there. Yeah. Yeah, well, and you were saying, too, that um, an objective can be uh, a picture. And yes. as you were saying all of your different objectives for her, I kept, um, I was picturing this minimizing, like to make her be small and feel small and go away so yeah. that you can brush yeah. her, get brush her, her the heck out yeah. so she stops taking up space. Yeah, yeah. Literally and figuratively in your home. Erase her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, diminish is such a good one. Yeah. And, and you can diminish someone by brushing them off yeah. or by crushing their spirit. Yeah. Or by you know um, making them feel physically small, making them feel mentally small, yeah. making them feel inconsequential, yeah. right? And these, so in um, in a sense of direction in this uh, objectives chapter, which Kateri, as a very dedicated podcaster, read, um, he talks about these different forms of verbs. He likes actable verbs. He doesn't like intellectual verbs, which are too thinky. He doesn't like ad adjective verbs, which sound too much like adjectives. Um, but he has these ones called trigger verbs, which he doesn't like, but they're actually transitive verbs. And, and what I like about these verbs is they he doesn't like them because he thinks you can't do them long enough, mm. right? They just, they're over. Like if you kiss someone or you kick someone or you slap someone, it's over in a second. But what I think they do is they, they're a metaphor. They're an image. So if I'm thinking about um, slapping Kateri or my scene partner, right? It's not that that's, that idea or that action needs to be, has to be the length of a slap. It could be that I'm slapping them with my words right. for 10 seconds or a minute. Um, and it just is a very powerful image translated yeah. into something you can do. Well, and I think we'll talk a lot more about this when we talk about embodied cognition and embodied emotion. But the other thing that's really cool about all of those different verbs is that like, you, I imagine that both your physicality and your vocal quality is very different if you're slapping someone with yes. your words versus if you're pounding them yes. or crushing them, Yeah, right? Because yeah. those have different timescales. They have different resonance frequencies, right? Like they ha And they have different... Like I, I'm moving all around yeah, right now. Great. I'm like I'm like wiggling my my, <laughs> my shoulders as though that would help convey what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's a good time for me to cough. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the one other thing I just want to talk about in terms of analysis was obstacles. So an obstacle. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone knows what an obstacle is, right? It's the thing that's in your way to achieving um, your objective. So going back to Stanley Kowalski, what's in his way to diminishing Blanche? Well, Blanche is a big talker. Stella loves her sister. Right? Uh, what else? His friend Mitch is kind of into Blanche. I haven't read this play recently, but there are w one thing I learned from um, an actor who visited my uh, my class once is have at any given moment you have one objective. The scene might have more than one objective, but at any given moment in time, you can only play one objective. But that one objective can have a ton of obstacles. So one objective, as many obstacles as you can think of. Yes. And I actually was reading, I was rereading a chapter, um, which we'll, I'll put a reference to on the website, um, by Phoebe Ellsworth and Klaus Schur, who are some of the big appraisal theorists. And it was a chapter they wrote um, 10 or 15 years ago, but it was talking about goals. And it actually used the word obstacles to talk about one of the sort of appraisal dimensions of how, so I have this goal and then 
how easy is it for me to get that, to achieve the goal and what are, what, what characterizes the obstacles. And they talked about what's tricky is that sometimes a single event. So you just talked about how one goal can have multiple obstacles. Sometimes a single obstacle has a different relationship to two different goals your character has. Oh yeah. Right. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, let's say, let's say you and I uh-huh. are in competition for a role. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what yes. I mean? Great. And I want your career to be successful. Mm-hmm. I also want the role right. and I hear that you've gotten it. Right. And so right. then I'm simultaneously feeling some sadness, maybe some insecurity, maybe some like anger at myself for having not done all I could in the callback or whatever. At the same time, it's, I, I, I don't want to display a lot of that sadness. I might be having a secondary emotion for that because I want to preserve the harmony of our relationship. Yeah. Like let's say we're together when we find out just to up the stakes a little yeah. bit. Because if it were a play, we'd totally be together when we found <laughs> out, right? And, exactly. uh, you know, but I also have a goal of, you know, yeah, having, you know, your career in mind and those sorts of things. And so there's a single event that might be an obstacle in one case or a, a, what's the opposite of an obstacle? A facilitatory... Event, an enabler, you know, an enabler yeah, uh, yeah, for for another goal. But this also gets into this question of if you have, let's say, multiple events relating to one goal, or you have a one event that relates to multiple goals. How many of those do you really keep in mind? Right, like does your head right. explode because you have like sixteen different objectives in your mind at once? That's too many. It's too many. And so, <laughs> emotion theorists have also asked this question in the form of. Do we ever actually feel two different emotions yeah, at once? Yeah, yeah. Or do we just rapidly cycle between um, yeah. conflicting emotions? And my answer would be you have to, just in the sense that you can only have one objective at any given time, it would be yeah. the, uh, one emotion, but you're, you're vacillating yeah. quickly between the two. And it's hard to actually really answer because, again, as we talked about, just as it's hard to actually really answer what order do things unfold in the emotion yeah. process because it happens so fast and as soon as it happens, it changes it's hard to know like what's what's one what's one emotional moment in time right, you know and then right. you can feel both um so some some emotion theorists have argued you really can feel mixed emotions where you feel high levels of two emotions but a lot of people have thought that it really is this rapid cycle so that if you're like at your you know your college graduation for example and you have this bittersweet like poignant feeling of i'm happy for myself that i'm going off into my career but i'm a little scared and i'm yeah. also a little bit sad that i'm leaving all my friends behind that at one moment you'll be thinking about your future career and, and in that moment you'll be happy. And then that might remind you that that means you're leaving all your friends and then you'll right, be sad about right. that. So, so I agree poignant- with you that that one at a time is definitely more playable. And yeah. it's like a relief as an actor to be like, oh, I don't have to be thinking of 16 right, things. Right, at a time. right, right. Um, and we talked, did you use the word poignancy? I just love this yeah. idea of, okay, poignancy of both of those things. Or ambivalence is another way, which you can feel or or you could want to, right. to very, because I think the definition of ambivalence is not that you don't care, but that you actually uh, kind of want two very different things or feel two, two very different things at the, at the same time. And that's what creates ambivalence. So it's actually two powerful forces working at the same time or working back to back or vacillating yeah, between and, them. And psychologists have distinguished at times between uh, the, the, the feeling of, so a lot of times um, in psychology studies, people will use a scale to ask people how they're feeling. I tend to use a single emotional scale and sometimes use multiple of them. So I, I will ask people, how negative does this thing make you feel from one to four? And if I also want to know how positive does it make you feel, I'll say, and how positive does it make you feel from mm-hmm. one to four? Some people for convenience or time or because this is consistent with their view of emotions will use a scale that goes from like one to nine where five is neutral. 
right? And one is, it's very negative and nine is very positive. Yeah, yeah. But that forces people to not feel both of those, not to say that, that the same thing causes them to feel um, both positive and negative. And so if you think about how you get to a, like, let's say if you show people a bunch of different pictures or you ask them over and over again how they feel about something, you can get to a five on that scale in two different ways. One is, I don't care about this thing. It's the blue green color of the paint in the restaurant. Right, like I right. feel five about that. And you can also get to a five because oh. you simultaneously love and hate that yes. thing. Right, right. You know right, what I mean? Right. So it's actually more interesting if you have the two separate scales in Personally, you could argue, I think so. Right. I think so. But it um, takes more time and time is money, especially when you're scanning people's brains. Awesome. My final sort of question that we've talked about before is just circling back to objective and the power of objective, the kind of so what, why is this such an important acting tool? I feel like you articulated it really well in a previous conversation. Like why do acting teachers, why do actors think so hard about objective? And there's something that shifts when you finally nail down a really, really good, strong, powerful, specific, uh, truthful objective and you do some other work <laughs> in terms of all many different other acting tools, you begin to drop into that character. You begin to embody that character. You begin to empathize with that character. I think we're doing a whole episode on empathy, yeah. maybe. That idea of being able to feel like the character feels or think like the character thinks in certain situations. Yeah. Um, so I, I would love to better be able to talk about that sort of power besides saying... The easy answer is it's a verb. You can do it. Yeah. And the verb has um, is being played on someone else on stage or on you. Yeah. So it is doable, right? And on top of it, you're thinking about the desired result. Right. So all of that are things that you can constantly be negotiating. So yeah. it's very active. I mean, I think some of it is just... I think there's a benefit of um, focus, right? And yeah. so much of acting tra training is just being able to like leave your baggage at the door and be in the present moment. And we'll talk about presence later. And so I think some of the usefulness of a specific verb and having it be performed upon someone else yeah. is you're just getting out of your own head. And what does it look like when I'm doing right now? And all of those goofy thoughts that you have when you're on stage, <laughs> you know, to, 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 to having a singularity of focus. Like, and I think isn't there some like some famous person who said that like I, I, I don't know where I'm getting this like quote from there's some quote that like you could watch like a kid like eat a banana on stage and it would be yeah. fascinating yeah. just because they're so mm -hmm. focused on what mm -hmm. they're doing and, and unselfconsciously mm -hmm. but I think that there's an additional boost the moment when you find the right way yeah. to connect an actor to a character with a really good objective and I think part of that has to do with like just locking into a concept or a situation or an appraisal that that performer like resonates with, yeah, right? Like yeah. so that if, you know, if that performer um, grew up on a farm, right? Right. And you say, you know, you give them an objective in the form of an image of like, you know, you're a foal who needs to stand up for the first time to show that you're, you know... Mm -hmm whatever like that that would resonate with that person where someone who didn't grow up on a farm would be like what, what the if, what yeah, I don't, I don't what care about. you right. know what I mean but right, it, right. You, if you connect to right. a, a situation that, that that person can has a lot of um, like tags with we'll talk about this more when we talk about memory mm -hmm. but like our yeah like our mm -hmm. experiences are tagged with all mm -hmm. sorts of visual images and mm -hmm. conceptual knowledge and 
uh, and, and for some people words that have really deep personal meaning. And so if you can like hook into one of those things that has meaning and that opens up a really rich world for that person, yeah. I think that's what makes them drop in and go and it click. It clicks. It clicks. Up next, we have two interviews. The first one is with Allison Watrous and Ashley Temple, and the second with Larry Hecht. Please keep listening. Thanks. I am so excited to introduce my two guests. Ashley Temple is a former teacher at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts and the National Theater Conservatory, and she's now on faculty at San Joaquin Delta College in California. She's a teacher, director, and a former actor. Allison Watrous is the executive director of the education department at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. She's a professional director, actor, and producer. As an actor or teacher or director, which tools in the proverbial actor toolbox are most tried and true for you? Which ones do you use uh, with high frequency as an actor or teacher or director? Well, I I always teach uh, focused on objective. That's super accessible for everyone it's because what's it's what humans do it's what mm-hmm. we're doing right now yeah, right. <laughs> we all want this to be a really successful podcast yeah. so we're all doing things to make that happen and so that's always where I start with is with objective how do you teach how do you uh help your students understand what objective is how do you describe it oh well that's there's other Usually, it's there's the famous story that a lot of people use about objective and action, which is the cookie jar analogy. Do you know that one? Well, <laughs> it's a child. A child wants a cookie in a cookie jar, and the child will ask mommy, "Can I have a cookie?" And mommy will say no, right? And so the child will be, oh, and have, and then uh, you get really mad. So, so they're playing a different action, but they still want the same thing. Yeah, right? they still want the cookie, yeah. right? And then that doesn't work. So then, what do you do next? Then you go ask daddy, right? And then daddy says no. And so then, what do you do next? Uh, you know, you go break a window. I don't know what you do. <laughs> what child? Well, depend. Well, that's where character comes in, right? right. Because some some characters would go break a window. And some characters will go uh, make the bed and tell mommy they made the bed. Now can I have a cookie, right? Yeah. So that's what, yeah. what objective is. So how you play action is what my teacher, my mentor told me. How you play action is what reveals character. And action is always done in the pursuit of objective of what you want. Right. Listen, so what tools or tool do you find most useful? Um, absolutely. Objective action. Um, But then I would think the next tier of that is given circumstances in the sense of everything exists in the world of the play and how important that collaboration with the playwright is in the world of the play and that your imagination and what you build inside the world of the play is key. Mm -hmm. So anything outside of that, that's probably not going to serve you as much as the play is going to serve you in the given circumstances. And then that's how you really look at the scene analysis to find what is the objective and then to find what are the things that the character is doing to get what they want within the given circumstances, that it's all connected. Great. And it's, I find it, uh, I, f- I find that there's a lot of different ways to teach given circumstances. And one way that I've begun to think about it is not all the, all the, both all the objective facts of, of the sort of character's life. And we could look at them as, 
uh, past, present, future, or concentric circles of what's the circumstances of the scene, of the play, of the world beyond the play. And lately, I've also gotten into sort of the subjective truths of it, like the, the character's relationship to the given circumstances. I think that it's important to definitely embrace the given circumstances that are the world of the play. But if the world of the play is rooted in World War One, then that is right. also the world of the play. Right. And all that dramaturgical work, like I sometimes think that actors work so hard sort of around it, of like, mm -hmm. my craft is around it, instead of like, mm. no, if you really dive into what is the world of the play and all the influences historically, the influences that are the relationships, the family dynamics, if you really break that apart and really get inside the given circumstances that it will give you everything that you mm. need. And, of course, all those things of like, yeah, how, how does my character relate to this other person and what does that relationship mean? Right, right. What is my time of life? What is the crisis that I've had before this moment and what am I headed towards? All those things. Great. Yeah, I think sometimes students don't trust playwrights. And I'm like, you know, these are really good plays. The playwright has done a lot of work. And if you really examine this play, and really, it's, it's all there. Trust the line. Trust what the playwright has given you. And I th it, given, are, the, given circumstances, are, I think, are hard sometimes for people because it's such a weird given circumstances. It sounds weird, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a weird yeah. phrase. It's both really complicated yeah, 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 yeah. and, and yeah. kind of stupidly simple. I means yeah. either. Like Actually, we're talking into a microphone right now <laughs> on a pod, sitting on a couch <laughs> in an office with great friends drinking coffee. Go, go. <laughs> and for new acting students, I teach a lot of new people who are really new to it. You know, they so want to make it about themselves. Yeah. Right? And that's not where the freedom is. The freedom is in going out to that world, going into that world, mm -hmm. right? That's what's exciting. Mm -hmm. It might have nothing to do with your world. Mm -hmm. So let's just dig into action or actioning, right? Okay. So, so Ashley, you started with this and, and I mentioned it in the first episode that a character has a super objective or a through action mm -hmm. for the whole play. Then we have objectives within that are roughly a length of a scene, uh, roughly. And then with what you could be playing one objective, but with several different actions. So how do you tackle that? Uh, well, one exercise that is great is there's actually a commercial right now that shows this really well, and it's a car commercial, and the two people have the same text, and it's uh, – have you seen this commercial? Uh -huh. And one, the guy, he's just – his car's just been crashed, so he says something like, this is incredible. And the other scenario is the same script. It's a, a father has just given the young girl a car, and she's oh. like, this is incredible. And then I don't know his next line. He's like, I can't believe this. And she's like, I can't believe this. <laughs> So, and it's, I'm like, that's, if I could just get that commercial and bring it into my students that, you know, that they're, the line is, is determined by how you're trying to make the other yeah. person feel yeah. or, or the given circumstances, right. the, of two totally given circumstances, and then the action on the other person yeah. is completely different. Right. The, the transitive verb. The, right. So, like, lots of times we'll pick, have someone, the first basic exercise we'll do in class is we have a line that we choose together, like, the coffee today is very cold. It shouldn't be very emotional, right? It shouldn't right. have any emotion attached to it. Right. And then they each get to pick out of a hat, sort of, a, like, a, a, a action. Sometimes it's, I phrase it, because the way I learned action is slightly different than sometimes other people understand it. But the way I learned it at Yale was, 
your action is how you're trying to make the other person feel. Uh-huh. Right? Um, but however, you know, this all, all of this is just a roadmap for when you get lost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's like the, most of the time, like acting, you can't be thinking about this, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. this is how you practice. You mm-hmm. practice using a map, mm-hmm. right? You practice, you have your map and then you put the map away. And then mm-hmm. those moments where you get lost, I'm, you're rehearsing, you know, like, I don't know what I'm doing. You might be like, okay, what do I want? And yeah. what am I doing here? And, and that's when you, you can, that's what the tool is, yeah. right? A lot of acting is intuitive and, and in the moment. And you might not always need it, right? It's, these are tools for when you're like, I, I, I need some help here. Yeah, yeah. How much of the analysis and the, um, yeah, the intellectual work that we do alone in our room yeah. or we do in rehearsal actually are we focused on or thinking about you shouldn't be in, thinking in about performance? That yeah. <laughs> well, that's in your bones, and then you do all of that work for it to be in your bones, and then you play the moment, and then you yeah. play the thread. Like I always talk about the thread because I think that sometimes we separate everything out, right? We're like the super objective is the whole, then it goes to the objective, then it goes to the action, and it kind of makes it parse out mm-hmm. instead of, and I learned from Ashley this mm-hmm. idea of how you make the other person feel and it's all connected to the other person. And if you are not connected to the other person that you really need something from them, you probably need to go back in and figure out what your objective is for that moment. And if, if it has nothing to do with them, mm-hmm. then it might not be what is really <laughs> happening right. Right. in the right. scene. Right. And it might not be exactly what the words are saying. There might be a really big human question underneath it that is playing the need of the scene, yeah. which then connects back to the given circumstances. And we haven't touched on two other really big factors of this, which is obstacle Mm -hmm. and stakes. Mm -hmm. So that the obstacle is what is in the way of what you want. Most of the time that lives in the other person. So again, it's about relationship. And if your obstacle isn't positioned correctly, your stakes are probably too low. Mm -hmm. And most of the time playwrights are writing about really big human things. Mm -hmm. So we try to figure out how we can raise the stakes. How do you, again, as teacher or director or actor, use substitution in your work? I'll start with Allison. And everybody correct me if I'm wrong. I think that the original idea of as if also came from Stanislavski. Mm-hmm. Yes, the yes, magic okay. if. Yep. Yes. yes, we should I we should credit him as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> the Russians. Um, but uh, for me, I think of it it's the thing of the personal connection or the personal charge. And I've been articulating it recently about like how you thicken it. And it's not about how, oh, I am going to play that my plant died (laughs) and I have to figure out it has nothing to do with the play and I'm going to bring in the fact that my plant died into this. No, it's about connecting of, oh, this person, all they want to do is get out of their circumstances and they want to leave and they want something better. Oh, wait a minute. I can relate to that. And you start there as like the center of the wheel and just go, okay, I recognize that as a human being, now I can plug that substitution or that as if, it's as if I really, really, really wanted to move to New York <laughs> or, or whatever, if I was perhaps Arena and Three Sisters, that, that I plug in and then I go, oh, that's a place to start. And then I build and thicken my imagination around that yes. to then put myself yeah. into the circumstances, yeah. into the relationship. So then I'm not 
bringing in or damaging myself in any way or grieving on stage in any way. <laughs> I just am using my imagination to go, oh, I'm a human. They're a human. Right. These things connect. Great. Now I can go into the character. Great. I love that. Yeah. I love the idea of thickening. Yeah. It. I'm going to steal that. Totally. I'm stealing, I'm stealing like 18 things you just said. <laughs> Me too. So, um, the as if, again, is one of those things that I will use with people that are struggling. Mm-hmm, uh, it's, mm-hmm. So how can we – but it's important that you never bring that character down to your own circumstances. It's always – I mean, it has, to, it has to be a way in. But there, there's some textbooks out there that was like, like oh, it's you're dealing with Hamlet's father's ghost you know it's as if I can't buy a car you know it's no it's not it's not like that at all so um or however they say it and again I think when you have enough imagination you can lend yourself over to that you know and you don't have to be like oh I have to imagine my father dead I don't nobody wants anybody to be doing that on stage but you do have to imagine I am Hamlet and and my, and my father's died. And maybe you do go into like, well, what is that like to be alone? And then what is it like to long for mm-hmm. your, that mm-hmm. comfort? Mm-hmm. What is that really about? Mm-hmm. And, and then I think once you start to talk to yourself like that, you start to empathize yeah. w- with, with mm-hmm. what you want. Mm-hmm. These are all tools. So you, as an actor, you mm-hmm. get to pick and choose what you want. And so what works for me does not always work for other people and, and that's developing your craft and that's right. why you want to study with a lot of different people yeah. so you can go oh you know this doesn't work for me but this does right. you know and this is, is I'm still the tools are, are I'm still clarifying and making them more oh, effective so for example subs, with the with the as ifs I, I think I used to think the as if had to have actually happened to me whereas oh. actually no 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 aspects of it like if, if the as if involves Allison yeah. Allison is re- very real to yes. me but maybe the as of situation never yes, happened right. with and us. But I had to sort of figure the that imagination, out. right? right. So always right. going back yes. to the imagination right. being your greatest tool, right? Mm-hmm. Your yes. ability to access it and use it and let it be spontaneous and open and share it. Uh, that's that's probably the greatest tool that everybody needs. That's the basic great paintbrush you need or paint color. Well, and these are these are all tools to access and make your imagination more particular. Yes. So it's all about like every film that you see and piece of art that you see, it fuels you as a creative person and how you view the world and it fuels back into your work in your given circumstances and imagination of like, oh, I have this inside myself mm-hmm. of what I can share. Mm-hmm. I think that Going back to this idea a little bit about the as if and how it's connected is I think that sometimes we think transformation is so far away from us that we have to do all of these things and like, I'm going to add this part of Allison and this part of Allison in order to transform. But transformation is very close to us. I will always be right there. So I bring everything with me. I don't have to work hard on what I've already lived I've lived it. So then I just go, oh, great, fantastic. I can use my imagination. I can be inside these given circumstances. I bring my as if as Mm -hmm. Allison because I'm her. Mm -hmm. I'm playing Mm -hmm. me. I'm I'm here. Mm -hmm. It's not far away from me. It's right here. It's how I step into Hamlet, how I stepped into Ophelia. All right, I have two more questions. The first one is, could how would you describe a superlatively successful performance, either a hypothetical performance or a real one. That's question number one. And question number two 
is are, what have we left out? Are there any particular <laughs> questions or obsessions that you are mulling over about acting, about theater, about you know what is truly engaging when you watch people on stage? You know, when you see great performances, uh, they look easy. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. They look. Mm-hmm. Oh, I could do that. No. <laughs> right. They're supposed to. They, there's an ease to them. There's always an ease and a joy. Yes. You never see. Even if the character is in great struggle, you yes. can always tell that the actor is really enjoying themselves and really that it seems easy, that it's just flowing out of them, you know? But that takes a lot of work right. to make it look that way. Thank you. And I think that it's important in that, and I think that there's a trend um, that it, that kind of happens instantaneously mm-hmm. when that mm-hmm. the what's beautiful about this work is the process mm-hmm. and is the rehearsal time and is really finding out like you might approach a scene and go oh okay I tried that and now no I'm going to go back in and I'm going to really figure out with my partner and with this incarnation of this work what the magic is together and that needs time and there's a marathon to this work mm-hmm. and a and a um, dedication to this work that is craft and it isn't something that you can just be like oh yeah totally I mm-hmm. got it <laughs> no it's really it's something that is like you were saying earlier that we all that's the beauty of this is at the beginning of every process of a play you feel in a way like you go back to the beginning and you're like okay mm-hmm. I answer all the questions mm-hmm. again mm-hmm. and of course I bring more of a richness every time but I answer all the questions again mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot recently in, in class and as an actor and director about given circumstances and that sometimes we play them of like, ooh, in this scene, that's where we that's where we see them. That's where they are. <laughs> and how do you really carry them? We as human beings, given circumstances, it's threaded all the way through, but then there might be that moment where all of a sudden ribs open up and it's unmasked, and then there it is. But sometimes I feel like, again, we kind of parse it out, and it's like, well, that's the scene where it gets real serious. Yeah. No, it's there all the time. Uh-huh. And then the humanity of the play is when it's revealed. Yeah. So I, I'm interested in how we sort of like thread that journey. Uh-huh. I love it. Well, thank you, Ashley and Allison. Thank you. And I'm thrilled for our listeners to hear you. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) I am thrilled to have the opportunity to ask Larry Hecht a few questions in our first interview for the podcast. I'm going to start by introducing him. Larry was the head of acting for the renowned National Theatre Conservatory, the former MFA acting program at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. He also served as the head of acting for the Denver Center's Education Department before moving back to the Bay Area about three years ago. Uh, He also served as conservatory director at the American Conservatory Theatre. He's worked (laughs) as an actor at numerous theaters in Colorado, California, and throughout the country. Uh, Denver Center, Colorado Shakespeare Festival, American Conservatory Theatre, Berkeley Rep, uh, Marin Theatre Company, Magic Theater, San Jose Rep, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and the Arizona Theater (laughs) Company, and I'm sure I've left a few out. Personally, I've learned so many things as an actor being directed by him and as a fellow teacher watching him teach actors. We are very lucky to be able to talk with him. So, Larry, That's very sweet. because this is our first episode, yes. which focuses on objective as an acting tool, we're going to start there. So why do you think objective is such a powerful, effective tool? Because, <laughs> that's very <laughs> funny. Because, why do I think that? It's strange to be asked about objectives because, you know, because objectives is very 
for me were a total mystery when I, I trained at ACT back back with uh, Alan Fletcher and Bill Ball and all the original greats there. And there was always, and all my acting teachers, Paul Blake, uh, Bob Levitt, they, and it was all based on the Stanislavski and Uta Hagen material. And Uta Hagen's book had just come out. Yeah. So that shows you how old I am. It's in its, it's, in its 47th printing or whatever. Yeah. And, and we talk about her all the time. Well, <laughs> Respect for Acting had just been printed when yeah. I was studying. So um, all this was done, you know, the, study, the use of objectives was huge among all, most of the teachers in the country at that time. Coming out of the '60s into the '70s, that was the basis of all, all act, pretty much all actors. I won't say all, but pretty much all actor teaching at the yeah. time. So I spent as a young actor learning this. I had no. I was one of those folks that sat in class and went, "I have no idea what you're talking about." And an objective, I. I can read it on the page, right. but what it means to me is totally, uh, you know, was right over my head. Yeah. It, it was of no service to me. So as I began to teach acting, I had to take that into account. Although I had to teach the principles like objectives and actions and all that sort of thing, I had to begin to translate into what does that mean for an act an actual yes. person, you know, because it seems so, duh, kind of clear that if you're a human being, you, an objective is such a terrifying word, too. Uh-huh, I mean, we uh-huh. ought to get rid of that word uh-huh. first off. And when you translate it into wants and desires, you know, other words have more meaning to human, actual human beings than right. you say objective. Objective. Right. When you say objective, you think objectify, which means we turn it into something that is not almost human. Right. And, and it ha- also has a connotation of there being a right and wrong answer, right? Like most science is objectively verifiable, verifiable which is like there must be a single... In an objective way rather exactly. than a subjective way. It, it's actually intensely subjective. <laughs> right. And so if we ever got rid of that word, and I've, tried, <laughs> I've spent 45 years trying to get rid of that word, yeah. I mentioned I use it in terms of teaching only as part of the of examining the whole process that okay. leads to action, basically. So that everything, you know, me personally, everything has to come, just comes down to what am I doing, why am I doing it? Right, those right, two, right. And if you're not answering those two questions, you're not doing your job. So let's let's jump into how you teach it. If you don't right. like the... You might prefer another word, and you talked about actions, and we have sitting right here the act- actions, the actress, the source book. So, what do you love about this book, and how well, is it effective as a teacher? That we spend. It's only in classrooms, very rarely in rehearsals. Do you have questions like, what is your objective? What are your actions? What are your obstacles? That's supposed to be your job as an actor, anyway, right. to have filtered through some of that. And the older you get, the more of that becomes instinctive so that so that answering those questions seem to come more from your body than they yeah. do anywhere else what's going on. But in terms of studying the craft of acting, it is good to have a simple process. So mm-hmm. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to find a way as other trainers have of getting it as simple as possible. Yeah. 
So instead of saying an objective, what would you came up with? You had dozens of other words that mm-hmm. seem to make a want, a need, want, a desire, need. intention, you know, say, motivation. When you say something to somebody like, you know, well, what do you want? Mm-hmm. It seems to register more than going, what is your objective? Right, right. And they, everybody clams up and they go, oh, my God, that makes it sound really important then, you know. And Well, and even having a place to, to start, again, I think that for a lot of people, the, the fear is that you're wrong. And so to be able to open the page and be like, let's try this one. Like, does that even work? Because having one is, pr- even if it's off base, it's probably better than having none. Well, that's one of the and things. And then you that, can adjust yeah. from there. Well, that's the main thing for all these processes is just dealing with the simple fear of making a choice. And that's, mm. we as actors spend 99% of our time and trying not to make choices. We go, we spend, <laughs> we go, well, it could be this or it could be that. Right. And I don't know what it could be. It could, well, I think it's sort of like, you know, yeah. and all that kind of stuff, which, because the minute you make a choice, you feel you have to commit to doing yeah. it. So we, t- we use shorthand. We go, okay. Pick something. It doesn't matter if it's wrong or right, because what's wonderful about this, you're an artist. You can change yeah. your mind. Yeah. It's and, not it's not written in stone somewhere. Right. And I've seen performances where maybe I think some aspect of the performance is off, but the choices the actor is making are super strong. And I admire the performance for that, right? That they're making these super clear choices, even if they don't fully align with with the story but 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 eventually the actor has to go am i telling the damn story right right that's, right that's your job yeah you know you're a storyteller yeah, yeah. so you want an objective tell the st- tell, yeah. the, tell the story the idea of objectives i mean really th- comes from i think their want and when you uh as much as i know from all these years of trying to get away from it is it's only one answer to why you're doing something. Yes. And to pick one objective is absurd for a human. If you're creating a character that is a human being, yeah. how can you, if I were to ask you right now, what do you want? You would have a hundred different Exa- yes. answers. Yeah. Why deny a character the same yeah. sort of by going, no, your character only wants yeah. this in a scene. Which is ludicrous. I agree with you, and yet I feel like with student actors, it's a valuable thing to talk about to get them out of, uh, you know, uh, the emotional state of being and into something active. But that's why you can make these choices, but letting them know that it's not, it's not so much the objective. Because if you're playing a human being, there are many needs, many wants, many desires. Even in the moment, mm-hmm. even as beat to beat, mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. many of those things. But what they have to do, they have to add up to what do you do to get it? Mm-hmm. What are you doing mm-hmm. to get it? Mm-hmm. It's the action that is telling the mm-hmm. story. Let, let's continue to talk about action. So yeah. action, the actions, the actress, thesaurus. So it's, it's a thesaurus of transitive verbs, right? right? That fill in the blank. I blank you. I attack you, I seduce you, I not flirt with, that wouldn't work because there's a preposition, I coddle you, I cajole you, etc. Talk more about why I love this book. I use it a bunch of different ways. Why do you love it? Why I love it is is because the thing, it has to do more with choices of language, words that stimulate the mind and the heart. So that it's not, you know, one person says, well, love, you know, to get love. 
And you go, but everybody has their own interpretation of what that is. That's where the subjective thing of finding a word like, you know, passion, sexual satisfaction, you know, I mean, different people go, oh, that sparks my energy in Mm -hmm. terms of pursuing it. Mm -hmm. And that's all you're looking for. So it's basically semantics, finding the right trigger that makes you want to do it, to yeah. pursue it. Yeah. And that's where that's where we you know, we have this whole category of in the world of objectives of of the we have universal objective that we have core you hear these all the time, core objectives, uh, the, the tree of objectives, which that is the spine of the character. Right. And all that stuff, which is interesting and leads to, but should only lead to motivations mm-hmm. of why you're doing what mm-hmm. you're doing, mm-hmm. what you are mm-hmm. going after mm-hmm. to get. Yep. So I have a question. So A, do you use the thesaurus when you're performing? Do you use it when you're directing both? Well, I don't because if anybody... I have very few directors that ask me, Sure. what do you want? Okay. I come in with choices. Okay. I come in and I do my thing. They can say, well, have you thought about this? Or can you... With I hate to refer it to younger actors, but sometimes you you have to give a process for right. someone who's just starting on this. So do you know, we were talking a little bit about how sometimes um, objectives can be a visualization of like what sure. you want to happen. Oh, yeah. And you seem to latch on sometimes to some of the quality of, of the language, you know, mm-hmm. to, there are some verbs that, that have some properties in them that might even give give way to a sort of physicality or to a certain, you know, uh, certain tactics that you might use beyond that. So do you, do you feel like you latch on to visualizations? Do you latch on to like language? Like what, what makes you, when you're, when you're making choices. Like what I use yeah, as yeah. an actor. You as an actor. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is where, I mean, it gets, if somebody were to ask me right now with the character that I'm playing over the Curious Theater, what do I want? What are my objectives? I couldn't I couldn't answer it. Mm. It is you reach a point in terms of characterization where you are universal in the sense that where you become the human, you have certain things that are more important to you or that would seem and then as actor you think does this help tell the story better and all that sort of stuff. But I begin to maybe it's with age not concentrate so much on trying to find this is the right choice. I make the choice with what serves the playwright mm-hmm. in terms of storytelling. That's number one. Mm-hmm. If you're not telling the story, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Mm-hmm. If the story isn't getting across, you may feel wonderful about what you're doing and oh, <laughs> exuding. Oh yes, I'm so the passions and I'm, I'm, really, I'm leaving it all out there on the stage and all that and. And if the story isn't told, that's bogus, yeah. totally bogus, you know. And God bless it for all that energy in that. And sometimes that's what we do because it feels good. Why not? But that's ultimately... So for me, it's language first. Mm. Telling the story, getting the words right, getting as the playwright wrote them, punctuation and all. Indeed. Because there was an intent there. Mm-hmm. Service the playwright... 
And then I have all my crazy characterization stuff that I truly believe my extreme. Yeah. Yeah, I used to teach class called extreme physical characterization, yeah. in which, and I think mostly that's what actors are attracted to more than objectives and things yep. like that. They want to play characters. You talked about extreme characterization or extreme right. character, uh, physical characterization. Can you break down? I know this is a, we don't have all it's the time a, in the yeah. world, but speak to just one or two things within that that ground you in embodying character. Well, the main thing, uh, you know, that always comes from the fact that I think that that's what kids do in the backyard is that they don't need anything but the physicality of a character to play. And then out of that comes the objectives or the character or whatever comes out of putting on a towel tied around your neck and flying. Yes. You know, is that's where the imagination is triggered. And so I was always drawn to, in film and on stage, characters that were, you would say, were extreme sorts of character types. Or when when an actor, a specific actor, would go out on a limb and try something totally different physically. Mm. This is the kind of acting that wins Academy Awards, mm-hmm. at least gets you nominated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, that's one of the jokes in theater about mm-hmm. that. If you want, you know, if you want to get nominated for, or in film, if you want to get nominated for an Academy Award, you have to right. play somebody, somebody who My has some foot, extreme Daniel disabilities. Daniel Billy Bob Thornton Oh yeah, in, just go on and blade. on and right. on and on. Right. And well, Meryl does it. She has a great yeah. makeup person and she does we used to call it in acting school we used to call it streeping (laughs) and streeping is finding an accent or a way of talking that possibly no other human being in the world ever truly talked that way sure but it that's where the character would come through with her finding what the sound of the voice was like and then it became her nose Uh uh-huh she you know finding the right nose for the character (laughs) and And it's true you most of the great actors throughout time, it's been finding your physicality, finding the voice, the walk, the talk, all that yeah. first. Then the rest of that would come along. And I love that you tie voice into physicality because voice voice is a physical act. It yeah. make, uh, I remember Heath Ledger talking about his role in Brokeback Mountain, and he mm-hmm. f- discovered he's a closeted gay yeah. man, right? He discovered that he, if he tightened his jaw, mm-hmm. right? And it affected how he spoke, right. but it also gave him information for how to embody mm-hmm. his whole, But it started with the mouth, and it started with how sound came out. No, yeah, that's why that's why we love characters with accents, and particular regionalisms, because it's easy for us when we do the accent, it triggers us into that the specifics of that character, right? And that's why we have to sound that. Well, even you know. Uh, it, I don't. There is no such thing as general American. Right. There's no such thing as mid Atlantic, unless you're a, a whale or a fish. Mid Atlantic you know, is I mean, totally fake. All that yeah. stuff is is been layered on. Uh, when I got to work with you, you directed me in Crimes of the Heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved working with you. And one thing I will always remember: I was blonde. <laughs> one thing. How did we not meet when we were both blonde? Twenty twelve. Mind blown. <laughs> um, is you and I know this from your work at the National Theater Conservatory. Mm-hmm. The environment, the architecture of the space, how the space is laid out, what furnitures inside of it, where it is, 
And in rehearsal, what we did is we over and over and over again kept mo- figuring out where character was moment to moment. And mm-hmm. I loved it because by the end of the process, and we would have three or four or ten iterations of the staging right. in one scene. By the end, I was so comfortable and safe and specific at any given moment because I knew that I belonged sitting at the table or sitting on the stairs. Do you... Always work that way, I guess Always. is the question. I mean, as an actor, I work that way because your behavior is dictated by the by where you are, the space. And if your body doesn't know how to behave inside that space, you can't be telling a truthful story, mm-hmm. then you're mm-hmm. lying in some way. Mm-hmm. And God knows we're doing pretend anyway, but it's still the, everything inside this space affects your behavior in some way right. down to the temperature of the lighting and you if you begin to trust your body to know where it should go and it's a strange sensation that it, once you turn it over your body that you don't need directorial choices much because your body will tell you where this should happen mm-hmm. and a director will usually go yes or maybe try this a little over let's see if it works here if that works a little better or whatever it can help that along but your body knows you know it's spending its whole life keeping you a lot trying to keep you alive and keeping you comfortable and doing all that stuff that stage is anti antithetical to right and so we go oh if your body wants to go and it should be laying wants to go lay on that couch go lay on the couch mm-hmm. you know i'm fascinated by how much of the homework the pre-production, learning your lines, the in-rehearsal homework, what if any of it ends up still in your brain when you're performing? So when we're performing, so much is physical, right? You're listening, you're speaking, you're um, physically sweating or something, you're having a physical experience. What is, how is your brain working when you're on stage? What, if anything, are you thinking about? That's, that's fascinating. You, you want to go, you're thinking about what your brain wants to think about. If your brain wants <laughs> right. to think about the bad burrito you had for dinner, it, that's what's going to happen. That's, what, that's yeah. what it's going to be yeah. thinking about. Yeah. Or that, oh my God, I don't have enough money in my check checking account to pay the rent next month. All that stuff, you don't stop being a human being while right. you're storytelling. Right. It's just in the moment, you've given yourself certain techniques that trigger more of receiving what your partner's giving you in the mm. moment. That's why we do the repetition stuff. That's mm-hmm. why we do ask questions all the time, right? Your inner, mon- your inner monologue has very few statements in it. It's mainly 99% questions. Mm. You don't go, whoa, wrong. Right. You go, do you know that's wrong? You human beings always human beings always ask questions because they're looking for a response. So that's the easiest way to get your concentration back. For me, anyway, everybody has their own way, but uh, I just start questioning back. You say hello, and in my head, I'm go hello. What do you mean by hello? Mm -hmm. And that triggers me into we're Mm -hmm. in the minute you Mm -hmm. ask the question, you're Mm -hmm. into the relationship. Your brain has a curiosity about the other person or people on stage. Trigger into the curiosity. You are in the moment with the person you're working with, and it's it's also like a, a really quick way because a question has an inherent objective, which is you need to know the answer. Right. So it's, yeah. it's, it's a really quick 
hack to get into a state where what we were talking about is the sort of pinnacle of, of objective, which is it's specific and you need the response from somebody else. And in the moment, it doesn't matter what they respond. Yeah. It's to get, your objective is to get a response. What the response is, is not important in the moment. It's to get the response. Uh, thank you, Larry or Kateri. Do you have anything you want to add? Uh, no, I wanted to add my things as oh, well. This thank is really you. fun. This is yeah. this is fun. I mean, you know, this is, when you do a topic like objectives, yeah. you're talking about what ten years of study or something. You know, I mean, there's huge people right. have committed their lives to right. investigating that. I feel really kind of bogus in that way that I've spent my life kind of going, oh, that scares me, so maybe I'll concentrate on something else. (laughs) But I feel like that's so common. And actually, one of my favorite parts of the objectives chapter was this observation that even experienced actors are resistant to it, right? Mm. They learn how to do it. They know they should do it. And then you get in the rehearsal, and they will stall and do everything else to get away from it. And so I think that that's... That's helpful, especially for people who are just starting out. It's helpful to hear that someone with decades of experience you've, you're packing, mm-hmm. it, it still can be a really frightening thing, but that it is a sort of useful tool and a useful, a useful framework. And I think it does help some people click in. And I think that the overall goals of, you know, of specificity, it, it, it really, it helps uh, train up that intuition. Yeah, right. I agree. Thanks, Larry. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye. And that's our episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word. As always, we have resources up on our website, www.theactorsmind.com. If you are like, what was the book? What was the article? That's where you can go and get a reference. We also uh, do just a little bit of social media-ing. So if you want to follow us, we're at Actors Mind Pod on Facebook and Twitter and the Instagram. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 